0: In the midst of Trump's four-month-long coup attempt against the democratically elected government of Maduro in Venezuela, an amazing set of events took place at the embassy in Washington, D.C., where coup leader Juan Guaido was incubated. On April 10th, activists making up the embassy protection collective began living at the embassy with the request and permission of the Maduro government to protect it from being taken over by Venezuela's right-wing opposition. One of the people who was there was a journalist named Anya Parample. She's my former uh, producer for my RT show, Breaking the Set, former host of the show in question at Russia Today. Just an all-around excellent journalist who spent a month herself in Venezuela on the ground and who's also a dear friend of mine. Anya, thank you so much for coming on to Media Roots Radio.
1: My pleasure, my honor. Very excited to be
0: here. Yay! So Anya, Anya. you were inside the Venezuelan embassy for ten days, reporting on what was happening to the collective. What motivated you to embed yourself there to report on this?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I I've been covering Venezuela primarily since this coup attempt started. I followed it closely for a long time, but once Trump attempt, uh, the Trump administration declared Juan Guaido president. I had the chance to go to Venezuela for a month in February and cover the situation on the ground. And one of the areas that I've been most interested in has been the diplomatic war the Trump administration is waging on the country. The way I see it, there are four fronts in the war the U.S. is waging against Venezuela. There's The economic war, which manifests in the form of sanctions, unilateral coercive measures that the US has levied against Venezuela since 2015 in order to strangle its economy, pressure the population into rising up and changing the government. We know, according to the report released by the Center in Economic and Policy Research, that those sanctions have killed 40,000 Venezuelans uh, over the last two years, which is an astounding amount. We have the economic war. Then we have a hot war, which we imagine they would like to get started on the border with Colombia. We remember in February when this humanitarian aid delivery was attempted, which was by the United States on the border with Colombia, where they were just trying to, you know, ram all of this aid through the border, which many Venezuelans and the were saw as a as a pretext for a military invasion. That Juan Guaido was on the border there with a ragtag team of defectors <laughs> that he was going to try and invade the country with. And Colombia called it off at the last minute, but they were definitely trying that. And then when he tried to take over the government again just two or three weeks ago, he used 80 soldiers, some of which he lied to and told that they were going to call a prison uprising, and they were using U.S.-made weapons in the streets which is bizarre because the Venezuelan military uses Russian weapons they've been purchasing uh, their their military equipment from Russia for over a decade now so that was strange we have to wonder where that those weapons are coming from and acknowledge that there's the hot war they're trying to get started the military war there's the media war which you know so much about as someone who covered uh, the Guarimbas the violent uprising there a few years ago, the disconnect between the media coverage here and truth and reality on the ground is just so vast. The corporate media, the mainstream media are totally complicit in Trump's coup. They're cheering him on. There's almost zero anti-war, anti-coup voices included on these networks, and they just lie about the situation there. You know, They say that there's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, I've been to Gaza where I witnessed a humanitarian crisis firsthand uh, due to policies implemented by the United States and our support for the Israeli government. And so it's hard to imagine that the same government enabling a real humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip, or Yemen for that matter, cares about, or the media cares about the situation in Venezuela because it's nowhere near what these other people are suffering on the other part of the globe due to our government. And instead, they're just tell- weaving this, this narrative in order to support the Trump administration, support the overall U.S. permanent war state in its, in its goal of waging a regime change war against Venezuela. So we have the hot war, the media war, the economic war, and then there's the diplomatic war, which came in the form of, for example, Vice President Mike Pence appearing at the United Nations and looking at Ambassador Samuel Moncada, Venezuela's permanent representative to the U.N., and saying, you shouldn't be here. You should go back to Venezuela and tell Nicolas Maduro that his days are numbered. Then also there was the move to illegally remove Venezuela from the Organization of American States, the OAS, in April, in complete violation of that institution's charter. The United States pressured its allies into voting to unrecognize Venezuela's interim representative at the OAS, even though at the end of that week, uh, in April, Venezuela was already scheduled to leave the OAS because they'd implemented that process two years before, saying that the OAS was essentially just a tool of Washington and there was no need for them to participate anymore. So at the last minute, the United States and its allies pushed to recognize Gustavo Tare, who is the individual nominated by the National Assembly in Venezuela, controlled by Juan Guaido, which had no authority to appoint diplomats. According to the OAS charter, only the sovereign government of a country has the power to do this. And still, the OAS made a complete mockery of itself. and recognize this individual, Gustavo Tare, who's not only a Guaido shadow puppet coup official, he happens to have been a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a think tank in Washington, DC, funded by the banking industry, the oil and gas industry, and the weapons industry. And he was working there up until he was appointed OAS representative by Guaido in the National Assembly. He's implicated in an assassination plot against Maduro back in Venezuela. That's why he can't go back. He was actually named in emails, uh, participating in emails where they were were planning an attempted uh, assassination attempt, or uh, they were planning an attempted plot against Maduro's life. Uh, So this individual is is someone that now is working at the OAS and has the complete support of the United States and was part of the way the U.S. has tried to eliminate Venezuela from the—participate in sort of the diplomatic uh, realm, which is completely absurd. And so the front line of this diplomatic war Early April, in early April became the embassy, the main grounds in Washington, D.C., because Guaido's officials illegally seized several other diplomatic buildings belonging to the Venezuelan government, including the military attache office in Washington and the consular building in New York. What happened was no one was in those buildings, and so
2: coup
1: regime officials just walked right in and claimed to have taken it over. So some activist groups, uh, particularly Code Pink in the beginning, had this idea to be inside the Venezuelan embassy at all time and maintain a presence so that these shadow puppet coup officials couldn't enter and do the same thing in Washington to the main diplomatic mission that they'd done to other buildings. And so... It started out as very very calm situation. I went early in the in the establishment of the Embassy Protection Collective and gave a little talk and spent the night. It was really casual. We could come and go as we pleased at that point. And then the day of Guaido's military coup attempt, his absolutely insane attempt to take over the government with again like eighty soldiers. Like at least try. At least try, man. But he This was seen as kind of a turning point in the day that the opposition here in Washington would walk in and try and attempt to seize Venezuela's embassy because it was also kind of coinciding with the date that the last of Venezuela's diplomatic staff returned to Caracas. And sure enough, Carlos Vecchio, Guaido's little shadow puppet here, or I should say probably more accurately describe him as Pompeo's little shadow puppet, showed up on the steps of the embassy and gave a press conference where he was completely shut down and humiliated by the activists who were occupying the building inside. But what happened from that point on is that his right-wing thug supporters surrounded the building and, and from that point on held it in seat. And that was I was there that day, and I was inside. I went inside, and I just decided I can't can't leave now. I have to see this out until the end because I, I, like I said, have been particularly interested in the diplomatic war. Two days before I was locked in there, I had just been in New York interviewing the UN Ambassador Moncada and, and Venezuela's Foreign Minister Jorge Arias. So it was it was kind of this this battle that was fresh in my mind. Something I, I really was fascinated by and and so I couldn't turn away I couldn't turn away from that at that point and I also it was just fascinating to see the way the activists on the inside organized.
2: Anya I, as someone looking at this from the outside in with barely any mainstream media I mean there really was no mainstream media coverage right. of it I still find it a little bit confusing how this all started and you've shed a little light on how there were these two other buildings that were basically empty that mm-hmm. right-wing protesters were able to just take over with no resistance. But this, the embassy in DC that you were at, when you got there um, and when the activists got there, was it already vacant of any Venezuelan government officials? Had they already vacated? And if so, why did they vacate? Were they vacating because of this coup attempt or was it something that was already happen- just or happening for other reasons?
1: Well, there were there were a few staff staffers left who live in Washington and weren't diplomatic personnel. They were advisors and people who kind of uh, watched the media and things like that in 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 Washington. But they weren't official diplomatic staff. Those those Venezuelan uh, uh, government employees were still present and around at that point, though they turned over their keys two activists who then the government legally invited to stay as guests in the embassy. So they were around, but they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have any leadership role, I would say, within the, the collective. And then at a certain point after the coup attempt, they weren't around for meeting with the collective at all. The diplomatic staff all had to leave just because what once the United States began uh, ending ending its recognition of of these uh, officials and their status, they they weren't they weren't in the country legitimately anymore. They were given deadlines to leave, just as U.S. officials in Caracas were also given deadlines to leave. And then, actually, it was kind of funny because one of the U.S. officials, James Story, he was asked to leave by the Venezuelan government in March. And they extended his stay for a little while. And then when he finally again was told that he had to to go back to the United States, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tweeted, we are withdrawing our top diplomatic staff. (laughs) And it was like kind of just a a play to make it seem like they were making this big decision when in reality they'd been kicked out.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, it's hilarious how many people were outside of the embassy, because it honestly seemed like, you know, as this coup continues to fail on the ground in Venezuela because of the sheer resilience of obviously Chavistas, there were more people outside the embassy in D.C. than there were for Juan Guaido calling for these continuous uprisings on the ground in Caracas. I mean, for weeks, Anya, opposition protesters were camped outside in what looked like a state-sanctioned right-wing riot. Way far crazier than any Occupy protest, any protest I've ever seen. I mean, talk about what they were doing all night and day as you were inside the building.
1: It was absolutely nuts. And Abby, you would know as someone who lived in Washington, D.C., how this was something that I could never imagine happening in Georgetown. (laughs) But it actually did. Georgetown is the nicest, most elite D.C. neighborhood.
2: Oh, so this and... wasn't even in Embassy Row? This was sort of in uh, Georgia. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: On the canal.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I Surrounded by really expensive condos and townhouses. And... Weird. Yeah. So it wasn't just like on Embassy Row where these people, these uh, hooligans, they were honestly like drunk soccer fans <laughs> that were just all they set up tents on embassy property, which again is sovereign Venezuelan territory. The police allowed them to set up tents and block every single window, door, anything they could do to prevent people from going in and out, and more importantly, prevent food and supplies from getting in. They were allowed to just set it up. They had tents everywhere, they would blow air horns. <laughs> pots and pans at 6 a.m i slept on the very top floor of the embassy because i kind of sleep late and i had to wear earplugs (laughs) because every day like pot work at 6 a.m you would just hear like screaming uh metal pans just being banged together so they could wake up people in the embassy as early as possible and they would do that until 10 p.m which was when the police designated that they had to That was like their curfew every night. And then after 10 p.m., I'm sorry, they would do that till 10 p.m. And then after 10 p.m., they would just uh, run around into all of the windows and blare like uh, strobe lights, flashing strobe lights in all night so that people couldn't sleep. And I mean, fortunately, there was no one epileptic in the Embassy Protection Collective, but it was seriously a hazard They, whenever we look out the window, they would shine these bright lights in our eyes because they didn't want us recording video. Those are non-lethal weapons. I mean, those can really cause serious damage to people. And they would blare it into the ears of people on the ground and like shut them, uh, try and shut them up or make them run away. And, And people can, you know, suffer serious damage from that if you have a full powered horn in your ear. Like right up against it. Yeah,
0: some of them were going up to people and putting one on each side of their ear, like elderly people. Wow, yes,
1: elderly people. I mean, so yeah, this is happening in Georgetown. These people <laughs> are, are just behaving like, like fans of a football team that lost, and they can't accept it, and they are all drunk and upset. And this, I mean they they were they were really riled up. Is all I will say. I'm not sure what they were doing, but uh, they were up all night. It was kind of funny because if we would go onto the first floor and like turn in a light on any in any room, like a bunch of them would run to the window and start shining their lights in and then like screaming. It was honestly like we were surrounded by zombies. It felt like we were in a zombie horror film because you would
0: just, like, open a curtain and then they would all show up there and be like, ah! Well, there's no rationalizing with these people. I mean, there's no reasoning with them. There's no logic behind it. They are absolutely out of fucking control. And we've seen what they do. They'll lynch people. They'll burn people alive. I mean, Anya, there was one night where we were actually corresponding and I and we actually thought that they were going to break down the doors because every door was shaking. I mean, they... I. I didn't put anything past them at that point. And as we knew, the police were just allowing them to do all of this. Yeah. So
1: they, they, I mean, they did break in several times through the door overnight. I can talk more about that later. Again, under according to the Vienna Diplomatic Convention, Article 22, embassy grounds are inviolable, meaning no one from the receiving state, in this case, the United States officials or otherwise, can enter the building without permission from the government. and. No one. It is the responsibility of officials from the receiving state, meaning the United States, meaning the Secret Service and the police, to ensure that the integrity is of the property is maintained and that no damage or injury is caused to the diplomatic mission. That is on the United States. And while there were all of these Secret Service officers posted up around the building for days, they just sat by and watched. These 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 pro coup activists break windows. They tried to drill down the garage door. They broke down an, a side door, caused damage to the building, and were entering it again illegally. So the 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 Secret Service they tried to pretend as though they were there only to separate the two sides from the conflict and keep people safe, <laughs> in their words, but. I mean, they also stood by and allowed members of the Embassy Protection Collective and its allies to be physically assaulted by these people and then did not arrest them at all. Ariel Gold was assaulted, from Code Pink was assaulted by them. Uh, they they actually sexually assaulted her. Another individual during uh, an, an evening when food, people attempted to try and deliver food to our uh, to the collective and the people inside someone was actually strangled like put in a full-on poke hold by one of these right-wing thugs and they the police pulled the opposition activist off but then just like didn't arrest him at all whereas the minute someone from the embassy protection collective side would like reassert their them them their their the like control over their own space if a right-winger like shoved them or something they would get pulled away and they would get told to leave I was assaulted by these people when I, I went up to Carlos Becchio on his first <laughs> and he actually went, came up straight to me shook my hand and I was like about to ask him a question when I uh, just like a mob of like five people grabbed me threw me and then threw water in my face uh, Like all of these like crazy women started pulling my hair and then the secret service was like can you go across the street like you are obviously antagonized.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. And
1: so then the Secret Service pulled me away. Uh, but that was just like a small example of what they did. There's so many videos. There's like video of it. That's the crazy thing. There's video of it. There's pol- video of police standing right there and letting it happen. So the police totally enabled their their physical abuse of embassy protection collective members and also the violation of international law from day one. We were watching these people vandalize Venezuela's diplomatic mission in Washington, D.C. They were letting them set up tents on the front yard in the back. What I and, and other individuals inside tried to ask the Secret Service is, would you allow this to happen at any other embassy? Can you imagine, Abby, if pro-Palestine activists decided they wanted to offer op- <laughs> Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and do this to the people inside, they would never fly. I said, what about the Saudi embassy? Would you ever allow this to happen at the Saudi embassy? I don't think so. And so, it, I mean, it was also interesting toward the end, because for so long, the Secret Service was out there, and they are course taking orders from the State Department, and they— they pretended to be more balanced in the way they handled the two sides. And they also, we overheard them speaking a couple of times during shift changes and they were genuinely afraid. We heard them say things like, oh, be careful. I tweeted one, one point I thought was interesting they made. We heard them say, oh, on this side of the street are the pro Guaido forces. They're essentially the U.S. government. <laughs> and then on the other side are the anti war protesters paid by Russia or whatever.
0: Wow. Talk about broken brains, dude. Right, right. But then, what they like, all. Wow.
1: During that same shift change, was we're kind of worried about the arrest authority and who has the right to do what because Code Pink and these groups are filing lawsuits against individual officers. Good. If they. If they Participate in illegal arrests. So, you know, be careful and don't get photographed talking to the Guaido people because that'll make you look bad and we'll like, no, they'll know that we're not totally neutral here. And that all changed when they put the Metropolitan Police, the DC local police out front. The mood completely shifted. They were way more hands off in terms of controlling the right wingers. I watched. A right winger throw a flower into the face of a cop, hit him, right
0: wow. In the oh, wow,
1: nose, and he just didn't even react. Whereas I know for a minute, if like someone from Code pink had done, oh that, my god, handcuffs. Um, but the MPD Metro Police Department, they put up these local lower officers who were in way over their heads protecting an embassy put them on the front line in order to make them do most of the legal work at the end. They, that's when like, a police officer actually cut a line. They were doing these food deliveries uh, through rope a police system. And I'm sure you saw like when, for example, Reverend Jesse Jackson showed up. That's what he did. He connected A little backpack to a rope and then the Embassy Protection Collective was able to pull it up.
0: Yeah, and there was some dumbass, like, holding on with all of her might. She was, like, put her entire body trying to prevent the little rope from coming up. And (laughs) and Ajavu Baraka and Jesse Jackson were, like, boom! Like, nope, dude. It was insane. (laughs) I mean, well, well, I wanted to jump in there really quick and just be like, look, the Veterans for Peace, there's two really startling moments on him. Well, there's many startling moments, but the, you know, Veterans for Peace board president, Jerry Condone, I think that's how you say his name. I mean, getting brutally pummeled into the concrete for trying to throw a cucumber. Um, and then you had Ariel Gold, as you mentioned, charged with missile launching. I, it, it was comical. I mean, absolutely comical. If it wasn't so disturbing, I guess.
1: It was extremely disturbing, but the worst one was definitely Jerry because, yeah, we looked out the window uh, and saw him there holding a cucumber. And then the next thing you know, like four or five officers are just body ramming him, pulling him to the ground. And then they just left him sitting there visibly bleeding from his head for a good 15 minutes, and they weren't even the ones that called the ambulance. Margaret Flowers, the, one of the final four embassy protectors from the inside, she called because she's a medical doctor, and said, this is, you know, a man over 70 years old who just had his head shoved into the pavement by four cops, or even more. He needs medical attention immediately, and they they didn't call the ambulance. She had to, and then they they like prevented it it took like minutes for it to even come down oh my god the street once it arrived um, fortunately he's okay uh, i just saw him yesterday he's in really really great shape and he's more motivated than ever to keep working on this issue but i think you know that again yeah the police made some serious errors i think they looked really bad when they did that um, that's why I immediately started asking them, like, are any of you veterans? Like, do you realize what you just did? <laughs> everyone in front of everyone just had no self control. Um, and yeah, now he's facing assault charges. I believe Ariel's also facing wow. assault charges. Uh, I assume these cases will get thrown out because it's. And then there was also a, an elderly man who had toothbrushes. He was trying to deliver us toothbrushes, and the right wingers threw him to the ground. Cops. Uh, arrested him very violently and then charged him with assault. So it's just everything is super backwards, Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then Jesse Jackson showing up and getting attacked, like physically attacked by these same individuals. There's one man, this guy with the glasses who you see hanging off (laughs) his (laughs) to get him off. He was the most insane, one of the most insane members of the opposition. His name was Matthew Berwick. And he showed up initially claiming that he was a homeless Venezuelan. But then we were able to identify him and look him up. And his profile picture on Facebook is him flying a helicopter. Whoops. (laughs) Um, He was taking really (laughs) detailed notes on everyone. He had like this notebook where he was like always taking notes. And then the most insane part was that after all of this happened and uh, or the arrest happened, I should say of of Kevin, Margaret, Adrian, and David on the inside. That night when Carlos Vecchio had a press conference, he personally thanked this man. He was like,
0: thank Whoa. you, Matthew
1: Broderick, or Berwick, and he tweeted about it. Juan Guaido retweeted it, like, the thank you. Wow. Um, so this individual was super sketchy, and he was talking to police all the time, and it was just one example of their, their absolute thuggery. I mean, this guy, he was attacking a former presidential candidate. He had to be defended by a former vice presidential candidate. And then a few days later, I I was speaking with um, the Reverend Jackson and his staff. And I said, were you surprised? Did you expect them to be that violent? And Reverend Jackson's assistant, who was actually the one who like peeled thumbs off of the rope as he was trying to like get. This this food delivery stop was like absolutely not. I did not think they were going to be that crazy. Uh, it was like shocking for them. And I said to the reverend, like, did he put? Did they put their hands on you? Who's? Oh,
0: wow.
1: Can you imagine?
0: No, I can't.
1: People who would be allowed to do this.
0: Well, it's. I <laughs> mean, the the
2: the state state sanctioned nature of it. We should get into, yeah. a uh, in a little bit. But I wanted to ask you, Anya. We we keep mentioning. You know, for people who are completely unfamiliar with the situation, we keep talking about how these protesters were right wing. And I don't think most people understand, can see the full picture of that. They're, it's like they're not fully aware of that. So I want you to explain a little bit just how obvious it was that they were sort of right wing and the types of things they were saying to um activists right. in the embassy. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I heard some things on video that were pretty shockingly misogynist. Yeah. So I go into some of that stuff to to mentality in that regard.
1: Pretty much any friend of mine or acquaintance of mine who is either a member of the protective uh, collective protection collective or media was verbally assaulted by these people. I mean, any I there was one member of the protection collective who's black and they just straight up were calling the N word when he walked outside. They would use uh, derogatory homophobic slurs against people. They called one of my friends a pregnant lesbian, which, like, we don't even really know what that meant, but they were just trying to be insulting, and that gives you an idea of what they think is insulting, if those are the things that they're going to call you. Um, they Alina Duarte from Telesur, she faced the most intense and just horrific uh, verbal and, honestly, physical assault because not only did they call her there's video of her just one opposition guy in her face calling her an ugly Indian and saying oh tomorrow you're gonna wake up and you're still gonna be an ugly Indian but I'm gonna be white and I'm gonna be white and more beautiful than you like a man is just like saying this to her and they're telling her like you're going to pay you're going to pay for this and then the next day her doorknob on the front door of her home had been like Vandalized. It looked like someone had hit it with a hammer or a drill to try and remove it. it just, yeah, dude, this shit's not a joke. No, I mean, like you said, these are people who participate in lynch mobs. They stra they they burn people alive and are extremely violent. Back in Venezuela, so the fact that they were able to behave this way in Washington D.C while the Secret Service and the police just looked on is deeply disturbing. It's, it's just the way Nazi far-right activists in the United States are allowed to behave and have like open, like at Charlottesville, they can just, you know, have a straight-up fascist you neo-Nazi know, march in the middle of a U.S. town and terrorize Black, brown women, working people in the city, and the cops will just stand there and walk by, uh, watch and let it happen just like they did here with these Venezuelan fascists. They're all the same, part of the same political tradition. There, It was very odd. There were some uh, signs that were saying, like, the God of Israel is with us.
0: What? Honestly, what they. That's super bizarre.
1: Uh, it, it are the Israeli fascist right wingers. They're just like the most disgusting and shameless people, you know? hmm. Mm hmm. There are some right-wingers that will try and appear, like, attractive to normal people. They understand that you can't just be, like, a disgusting, misogynist brute. These people have no control over that. Right, because there's a
0: a lot of right-wingers in Venezuela will want to still go through the democratic process. They don't want to just throw out, you know, democracy altogether. So, I mean, imagine these people who really are begging The Trump administration to invade their country and slap debilitating, suffocating sanctions that are literally killing tens of thousands of their brothers and sisters in the country. I mean, you'd have to be pretty fucking deranged to be doing that. I mean, Anya, what you know? Well, of course, there's so much more. I mean, it's all on video. One of the guys who was saying we don't hire black people at my business, like telling one of the black embassy protectors. I mean, it's just unbelievable the things that they were saying on Camera and another thing is people were actually finding out who some of these people were, mm-hmm. and they sure as hell weren't Venezuelans that we can trust, Anya. I mean, talk about some of the identities that people revealed of people in the crowd.
1: <laughs> right. Why? Why is everyone who's curious about that to read a piece published by Jeb Sprague and Alex Rubin at Mint Press News, where they looked into the identities of, of these people? Because we're talking about people that, for example, have gover- U.S. government. Clearance and work and DIA and things like that are like are very wealthy uh, uh, individuals that are definitely not representative of the like average working class or average Venezuelan perspective that they claim to, to represent. So I would I would default to Alex and Deb on that because I haven't done the same level of research, but I can speak about Carlos Vecchio himself, for example. And his little underling Francisco Marquez, who are the Guaido and M- main, uh, M- <laughs> it's just kind of funny to call them ambassadors, but whatever they, <laughs> they call themselves. Like I always say, it reminds me of when I was like a, a, a little girl and I would dress up as princess or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was a princess. Uh, that's basically what they're doing with the concept of being an ambassador because ambassadors don't really plan the invasions of their own country like these people do but francisco Marquez is one of the founders of uh voluntad popular popular will party in in venezuela the the coup party the official coup party and he cannot go back to venezuela because he's facing charges over uh, his participation and assistance in the violent up Uh, the violent uh, um, Guarimbas which took place uh, over the last several years and one individual uh, Francisco Marquez whom he works with during one of those uh, periods of extreme violence in the streets in Venezuela was pulled over in his and in three million bolivars were found in his car and he never quite explained whoops
0: when he was whoopsie daisy
1: was doing with it um, but now both of those men are in the United States. For the last few years, they've had cushy university jobs, uh, one at Yale and uh, Becchio at the Harvard Kennedy uh, School of Government, which is just a breeding ground for people like him who are all waiting around for their chance to participate in a US backed coup attempt against their country. Ricardo Hausman. Guaido's appointed representative at the Inter-American Development Bank and the father of the Manhattan Professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So it's it's just it's like you said they're all empire incubator babies, but also <laughs> can't go back to their countries because they've participated in crimes. <laughs> so they're here. yeah, and these are the people who attended the meeting that we reported about at the Gray Zone, Uh, Max Blumenthal obtained that list of uh, people who attended a meeting at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a meeting titled Assessing Military Options for Venezuela. And Francisco Marquez was on the list, Uh, Gustavo Tare, who I mentioned as the OAS representative was on the list, along with Colombian officials, Brazilian officials, USAID, Uh, Just anyone that you could think of who would want to participate in military invasion of Venezuela was at that meeting. How is it possible that diplomats, people who are willing, like calling themselves diplomats, uh, can you imagine if a U.S. diplomat went into the capital of a foreign country and met on how to invade the United States and like openly was saying like, oh, we want to meet with South
0: Palm? I mean, it's treasonous. It's totally treasonous. It's like, I, It's unbelievable. Well, first of all, the fact that um, even the Secret Service is like, I think they're paid by the U.S. and then they're paid by Russia. I mean, little do these people realize that, no, the activists really... Um, have no payment behind them. They really care about preventing another sovereign country from being usurped and taken over with reverberations that could be cataclysmic for the entire region. But on the other hand, these opposition people, these Guadimbaros, they are paid. (laughs) Like, I'm sure a lot of them were there voluntarily, but I kept thinking like, how is it possible that all these rich ass people are like, literally just camping out for weeks? And I mean, yeah, Alex Rubenstein was doing incredible work too. Obviously, you have been doing incredible work at the gray zone that people need to check out as well like really going in depth with some of these media reports but i mean some of these people that were identified raytheon executives world bank officials the the are they i mean come on yeah i mean come on like they all are if if,
1: if they're all working at these think tanks that are funded by the defense industry right how is it a stretch to say that they're paid to be there they also had hotel rooms they were all staying at a Georgetown suite, right in a few blocks away from the embassy, because of
2: course Sounds people couldn't be expected
1: couldn't be expected <laughs> to camp out every night. They had a whole little system. Yeah, it was pricey, absolutely, to be staying there for like two weeks.
2: Well, let's just, wow. let's talk about the the general concept of this. That this seemed like a completely state and local law enforcement sanctioned violent yeah. protest. <laughs> yeah. And. And maybe just examine what that could mean. I mean, the, there's video footage, and I don't know if Alex took it or who took it while they were inside, of the door being attempted to be broken into. Yeah. Where you had to, like, prop up chairs, and yeah. I don't know if that was, like, a wire that they tied to the door to make sure it didn't open. Now, I don't know if that was during the daytime. It doesn't matter. There were cops present the whole time. They were mm-hmm. trying to break in. The cops seemingly did nothing, didn't care, yeah. let, let them beat up protesters. And as you said, it seemed like they were being put up in hotel rooms, and then we know some of them actually have connections to Raytheon and even the World (laughs) Bank. So all that being said, I mean, what what was just your general impression? Even if you have to speculate a little bit about what this was, I mean, would you describe it as like an astroturf protest? Was any of it or did any of it feel even organic? I mean, even the timing of it seemed seemed very manufactured. But uh, go into how you feel about that.
1: They showed up the day of the failed coup attempt in Venezuela because as their coup failed more miserably by the day on the ground in in Caracas, they had they needed some sort of victory and the way the only place they can look for for you know a little bone is Washington. So they thought like this will be the day that the US lets us raid the the embassy. And it the fact that it took so long honestly shows that even the U.S. government, and honestly, they're still not inside. I'm not 100% convinced that Carlos Specio will get inside. Wow. Because there's still too much at stake, even in the interests of empire, to allow this to happen. Because now, if they let this go through the United States, its own diplomatic buildings will be at risk around the world. But anyway, that's side on the question of what exactly happened. Yeah, they all just showed up thinking that they were gonna get inside and then promised little every day, little by little, by Carlos Becchio, like if you just stay out here a little bit longer, like we promised we'll we'll get in there. He would it was so embarrassing because he would just show up every day to like rally his little fake base of support outside of the embassy <laughs> and just like stand there and try like point at the door while people were shouting from inside of the embassy, like you are fake. You're a fake ambassador, Carlos Vecchio. Like they—they they had all these great chants. Like, how many coups does it take? Carlos Vecchio is a fake. <laughs> <laughs> humiliating, because he'd be like right underneath the window, trying to like say, "Hey guys, like we're gonna get in there," and then he would just get terrorized by the people above. I would. Add, I would. I enjoyed getting on the speaker. I would ask him some questions. I'd be like, who's your foreign minister, Carlos Becchio? And he would just like be walking around there with no answer. But these, like, it was like the voice of God from above all. (laughs) Protection collectors were just like you, or the embassy protection collective, and the journalists were just like humiliating him and he couldn't get inside. But he would go and rally his little troops. And they just had shifts because, like I said, they were all staying at hotels, so it wasn't very difficult for them to just get the manpower out there every night. And what they were doing, it was just the way for the U.S. government to do to its own citizens, who are legally inside of the Venezuelan embassy, what it does to the entire country of Venezuela. They besieged them on all sides with right-wing paramilitary psychos, just like they do in Colombia. And then they they prevented food. The 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 State Department, the Secret Service prevented food, water, and water from entering the building, just like they placed in Venezuela under a blockade to prevent goods from getting inside, so that the, the people suffer. And the, the U.S. you know hopes that they'll rise up and overthrow their government, just like they were hoping the embassy protectors would leave. And then as they got more and more desperate, they did things like shut the Power off, just like in Venezuela. Strangely, the power went off uh, after this coup failed in, in March, right? That's when they, the the power was cut off, and the Venezuelan government says that it was outside saboteurs who attacked their 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 grid. Uh, so you know, the United States can deny its involvement there, but what does it tell us if that was the same tactic they used against its own citizens in the Venezuelan embassy in order to get their intended result? Then they, and this is all, again all illegal. According to the Vienna Convention, Article 25, it is the responsibility of the U.S. government to ensure that proper services reach diplomatic missions. And instead, we had PEPCO promising the Venezuelan, the sovereign, democratically elected Venezuelan government officials that they weren't going to turn off the electricity on one day because the account was paid for. Again, I I published that bill on my Twitter account. So you can see the the account balance was zero the night that Pepco turned off the electricity from uh, from within inside the embassy. And Carlos Specchio's staff immediately outside bragged that it was because he made the order that the the power was shut down. And all of this again, it was the state standing by and just letting these right wing hooligans do what they couldn't do in terms of blocking food from entering. So the State Department would, or I'm sorry, the Secret Service had this statement they would read where they just lied and said, we are not preventing the food and water from entering the building. But what they were doing was just allowing the right-wing activists outside to physically assault anyone who approached the building, even Reverend Jesse Jackson anyone who approached the building with food. And then by the end of it the Metro PD was just cutting lines, rope lines like they the poor people's army tried to do a delivery of food and a police officer actually reached and cut
0: the I roof. remember seeing that.
1: Not not even not legal and they were lying. They were saying we're not doing any of this. The night that they were trying to break down the door, the the right wing crazy zombies outside. I recorded a video of Adrian Pine, one of the embassy protection collective members calling the secret service and being like hello uh i'm very disturbed that you guys are just like allowing a a lynch mob a fascist lynch mob to bang on the door of an embassy and and make threats against the people inside and they just read some prepared statement about how they were they were monitoring the situation carefully or something like that then another embassy protective protection collective member spoke with the secret service that night and said like are you going to make sure that we are protected and they said we are we're protecting the pedestrians on the
0: sidewalk yeah there was clearly orders sent from above because i called the secret service as well i was calling pepco continuously i tried to reach out to their media arm it was a very canned response and they all kind of directed us to this kind of answering machine i mean that that part was really scary though anya i mean aside from the fact that these people are fascists and kill people and attack journalists they shot my colleague in the back they obviously they chased me out of the country. I mean, it's, it's not a joke. It's not a joke at all what they're capable of. And when I saw Pepco officials yep. cutting the power, I, I got chilled to the bone. I really did. Because to use the same kind of besieging tactics, to use these same tactics that they're using on Venezuela as a whole to American citizens inside of an embassy, because this is foreign soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is an act of war. Um, Were you just what what did you think when you realized what was actually happening in terms of the power and water being cut? I mean, were you just stunned
2: before you continue on it? Did they actually shut the water off like from the from the street or did they actually cut power lines?
1: Uh, They cut the power off from the street. They got down into a manhole and then the water is questionable. We're not exactly sure what happened with the water because. Pepco, or I'm sorry, DC Water actually denied having received an order to shut the water off and denied doing it. But
2: Hmm.
1: considering I have a feeling Pepco is lying about some of the orders it received, like I I think when the State Department's involved, some of these uh, utility companies might not, you know, feel like they need to tell the truth. Though the night that the water was shut off, there was a break in to the embassy. Garage, and it's very possible that the cops allowed these uh, these right wingers to come in and shut off the water and then we we found a valve where we think we had turned it back on, but because I think the pump in the building was electric, the water couldn't get the water couldn't get all the way uh, upstairs, and so. The water, DC water, they claim it wasn't their choice. It's possible that the right wing broke in and did that themselves. We're not sure, but the Pepco definitely turned off the the electricity at the behest of
0: of these these coup officials. I mean, that's just really, really over the top.
1: Yeah, I didn't expect it. You were saying, was I surprised? Yeah. What? But yeah. And I was like, doesn't this look so bad? <sighs> citizens inside but no because again the media just didn't really cover it
2: <laughs> no one was watching yeah it's yeah. really strange and i it's in like, georgetown <laughs> yeah it seems like their goal i mean from everything you're describing it just seems like their goal was to evacuate the embassy of any activists um yeah and like you were saying if the goal was to allow these protesters to take over the embassy and that was sort of the stunt that they wanted the world to see that that would have set a bad precedent as well, because other mm-hmm. embassies of ours around the world um yeah. wouldn't be sort of put to a new standard of like, well, why can't we just go in and fuck up their embassy i mean well it's it's a strange thing that they i i mean if so but if their if their goal was to evacuate the activists, I just almost don't understand the purpose of that like were they worried that this would generate press eventually it's just an odd whole thing I is odd
1: the whole thing is odd and I think there is a split between the White House and the State Department on this uh, because they, the White House they just want anything that makes Guaido look good or makes them look strong at this point but the State Department I think has to take even though it is the State Department a, kind, a bit more realistic approach on this, because they honestly, they have a much bigger, more expensive compound, entire compound, that if the this illegal takeover of the embassy in Washington goes through, would be put into jeopardy, because so far, Venezuela is cooperating with the U.S. request to place that embassy under a protecting power agreement, which is what historically happens when there's typical relations between two countries, they pick a third party in the case of Venezuela or the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela, the U.S. has Switzerland, which would take over the consular duties of the embassy to make sure that U.S. citizens can, you know, still get visas or whatever help they need, normal, normal services from within the embassy. Uh, Venezuela wants to do the same thing here with its own third, third country, that it's proposed. And that was the goal of the Embassy Protection Collective, was to hold the building until the United States mm-hmm. to that. Uh, I think it's still possible because they they need an out from this. They need something. I, I don't think they want to lose the U.S. Embassy in Caracas. I think there are competing interests here. We heard people... Uh, O. staffers on the outside telling the, the right-wing hooligans, like, yeah, sorry we're not inside yet, but the one group that we can't obey are U.S. officials, because there were actually U.S. officials who are saying, like, this is too much. I mean, that is how insane this whole fight over the embassy is. It really was a new red line drawn and a question of whether or not the U.S. was going to cross it and establish this new crazy precedent where— right. Officials could just storm an embassy uninvited. And then they did in the end. I mean, they did. Although Guaido's coup puppet can't make it in yet, the fact that U.S. officials, 30, like 36 of them, three dozen U.S. officials, half of them in full-on military gear with helmets and night vision goggles and vests, raided the embassy to arrest four peace activists was an insane moment in the course of international history because nothing like that has ever happened before. Uh, According to just basic diplomatic principle, even in times of war, diplomatic agents and and missions should all be respected. The whole point of those people and those buildings are to provide space and, and room for dialogue to end violence and so the fact that the us would go this far and yeah again they, they they the 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 activists on the inside hadn't even locked the door they put like zip ties over one of the doors after us officials cut the barrier uh, on the night that like myself and two other individuals left but then they waited a few more days before entering to make arrest and in doing that, they didn't just go through the door where they cut the zip tie. For some reason, U.S. officials decided to use a battering ram and a pickaxe to knock down the door, a different door. And then, yeah, three dozen agents in, in riot and military gear stormed the embassy to arrest Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers david paul and adrian pine who are apparently you know so scary that they required all of those people and all of those like what do you i don't know what they think they had in there why they think like helmets and night vision goggles and all of that was necessary but you know how the cops are wow like they wanted their own little fake military raid to feel really important or something and then insanely enough Uh, I obtained the letter Carlos Becchio wrote to the State Department asking for this arrest. It's what the judge in the case used to eventually sign the arrest warrant for these four people. And in that letter, he says that they're waiving the inviability of the building, meaning forget about the Vienna Convention and these rules that mean your U.S. officials can't enter. Like, you can do that temporarily. I let you do that. Not only was he waiving the inviability of the building, he said, we'll waive consequences for damage and injury caused to the property by U.S. officials during these arrests. We really understand that, you know, things happen in these difficult times. So I thought it was just so, again, utterly pathetic for someone who considers himself a diplomat to be inviting foreign officials, not only inviting foreign officials into the embassy, but then saying, yeah, go ahead, break the door, like break a couple windows. We don't really care about preserving the integrity of our fricking embassy. Right. As long as you just get us into power. That for me is a metaphor for the way the Venezuelan opposition, these right-wing extremists view their country. They don't care about anybody on the inside. They don't care who dies. They don't care if their country just becomes like some little punching bag for U.S. empire. All they want is power, and they want power not on behalf of the Venezuelan people. They want it on behalf of Washington, on the people. They want it—they're they're doing it for John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, they'll burn it down. They'll burn down the country.
1: They're like, we don't care. Like, we'll temporarily suspend our sovereignty so that you can just put us on the throne and make us your little puppets. It's— so,
0: so pathetic. I, I mean, you talked about, yeah, It there's so much to say. I mean, first of all, the four remaining activists, Margaret Flowers, Kevin zees Adrian Pine and David Paul, of course, arrested at the barrel of a gun when D.C. police raided the embassy without first reaching that legal, peaceful resolution, which we kind of were all waiting for. I mean, invading the embassy, again, is invading Venezuela's sovereign territory, setting this completely dark precedent from the U.S., which could have devastating ramifications around the world um, in terms of, you know, attacking diplomatic staff, having this kind of hand, you know, basically gloves-off approach now with all of these um, diplomatic institutions. And we're already seeing kind of a ramped-up approach with uh, the Julian Assange, you know, pulling him out of the embassy, the Khashoggi dismemberment in, in the Saudi embassy, it's it's getting really surreal, Anya. Talk about really quickly why you chose to leave when you did and, and make that final statement where you had the portrait of Bolivar, because I think it really, it's representative of just kind of a larger thing.
1: Yeah, we... I had discussed once it came down to there there were three there were the three of us who left on Monday and there were four people who remained on until Thursday. And so there were seven of us in the end and we'd all discussed who was going to get arrested and who wasn't. As a member of the media, I didn't want to I didn't want to risk getting arrested and neither did my colleague Alex Kopenstein. We wanted to just stay up for as long as we could to observe on the inside legally and then record the rest from the outside.
0: And Carlos was gunning for you. Like, I mean, this, the, this ambassador, this fake little puppet ambassador, he was, like, gunning for you. So I don't blame you at all for, like, anything could have been possible, man.
1: Right. So we knew we would be safe and not be risking arrest until they posted some sort of notice accusing us of trespassing or what have you and then sure enough or an eviction notice for example and then, sure enough on monday last monday as we were eating dinner <laughs> some like split peas that we'd cooked on the car we had <laughs> another way to cook food um we look out the window and saw the right wing like tearing down all of their tents kind of tearfully and that an officer was carrying a manila envelope to come to the and was posting a a flyer on the door. So we had our friends on the outside send us a picture of the flyer. And it was totally a bogus letter. Like it didn't even have a letterhead or a signature from any organization or individual to make it even look like they were trying again to be official. It's just, they like fail anytime they pretend to be government officials. But it put up this notice saying that the OAS ambassador, you know, doesn't recognize the people inside as legitimate. And anyone who remains in the building past this the posting of this notice is is going to risk arrest or trespassing. So that at that point, Alex, myself and uh, another collective member decided that we were gonna leave. And I had this idea with the Bolivar portrait because that specific portrait that I carried out is based it's a computerized version of Bolivar based on his skull that was done under Chavez and the crazy right-wing opposition hates that portrait of him because they say he doesn't like look European enough even though he totally still looks European the problem is just that his nose is too wide For them, they really prefer if you go and you look at pictures of Bolivar, you'll see the one that I'm talking about where it's very computerized, digitized. It's obvious that's the one that they did officially with the government. That is the one that they have up in all the government buildings in Caracas. And then you'll see all these paintings of him with like a very, very thin, pointy nose as though he's, you know, Spanish nobility or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the first things the Venezuelan opposition did when they took over the National Assembly was remove all of those portraits of Bolivar. And so I figured they didn't want this one anyway. And my my uh, contact, who works with one of the few uh, staff members uh, left in, in Washington, is the one charged with caring for all of the property inside. There's an official letter that we gave to the Secret Service, the Embassy Protection Collective printed off and handed to the Secret Service that he had personally given to the Secret Service, emailed them as well, saying that he was the one in charge of this property. So I got his permission. I said, can I I walk out with this? He said, sure. And so I walked out just holding it because i didn't want to see all of those right-wingers after yeah after being inside for the whole time i just didn't really feel like looking at them they're so just <laughs> disgusting and horrific that i would rather just block it <laughs> but then uh one of oh, Becky's staffers was standing right there with his phone and he was like you are stealing things you are stolen things and then this federal agent came up to me and he was like ma'am is that your property and i tried to explain like oh it's my, co- my contact, he gave me permission. You have the letters thing that he's in charge. And he was like, well, I would hate to arrest you for stealing. So I gave it back on camera. But even then still for the next like 12 hours, all of these, emb- like Francisco Marquez, the one that I mentioned earlier, O's like underling, he tweeted out like, we literally caught her on camera stealing from the <laughs> embassy, even though like in the video, if they hadn't cut it off. I hand it right back.
0: Yeah. And they also were like, they also were like, take it. We don't want that that fake portrait of Bolivar anyway. Like, he's, uh, you know, just saying all this racial stuff. It's like, dude, thank you for proving my point. You guys would have destroyed this immediately once you came in.
1: I know. And there were all of these other portraits of, like, Chavez and Maduro and uh, other, depict- that, that other versions of that same portrait of Bolivar that I was just imagining how terrible it was and they really entered what they were going to do to those portraits because they smashed them into the ground in other buildings so
0: unreal yeah
2: yeah. it was pretty amazing that you were reporting on this live as it was happening alongside Alex Rubenstein who I also follow and compared to the mainstream media and you know all the Beltway publications that were painting this situation in a completely different light but also barely covering it and yeah, we almost didn't hear anything out of them. But I remember Alex posting an email and I'll just specifically talk about vice for a second because it's one of my <laughs> favorite subjects. But he showed he showed an email on Twitter from a vice reporter attempting to interview the people inside. Uh, I'm assuming you and whoever else was in there, implying that they wanted access to the inside of the embassy and that they had already gotten an agreement from the right wing protesters outside to let them through. And to inside the embassy and everything would be fine. What did right. you make what did you make of this bizarre email and did you think that it was possibly an attempt to actually let the protesters inside because of how you know we already know that vice yeah. is super untrustworthy. I mean what was your whole take on that?
1: Yeah, I thought it was hilarious that they admitted to Alex like oh like they will let me in. Don't worry if you if you if you agree to this like I've already set it up with the boys they'll just <laughs> let me me come through the door. Uh, More than being a front for the opposition to get in, I thought it was also just kind of like an intelligence gathering opportunity. Yeah. uh, Because we made an effort, Alex and I made an effort not to release videos that would have compromised anyone on the inside or like showed how the the collective had worked to, to block some of the weaker points of entry or just how much food was there or anything. We didn't want people to know. And so there was no way we were going to let this individual from Vice. Well, I mean, it wasn't my choice or Alex's choice. We consulted with the collective. It was their choice. And because the same uh, Vice producer also reached out to me and was like, hey, just hear me out. Like, please let us in. And so Alex and I were kind of like... uh, open to the idea of letting them maybe in the stairway for an interview with kevin zeese but then once the group discussed it they were like there's no point we don't gain anything from letting them in
0: and we don't want to risk them getting any any sensitive images or and you know the angle like you already know the angle it's like they were they were like literally like we've been with the opposition for like a week like now let's hear your side it's like okay
1: and then I so I just responded and very much inspired by your work, Robbie, I just wrote a little what's that message to <laughs> you guys are just the hipster wing of empire and the collective like doesn't believe this will be any different. Oh,
2: that's hilarious that you sent him a message quote. saying that.
1: Then that they included the quote in their report.
2: I remember I I thought that was hilarious. I thought you actually yelled it.
1: No, I like can send you the screenshot. <laughs>
0: Wow, that's, that's funny. Brilliant.
1: Brilliant. You, can include, you can include that quote in your report. I thought it was funny they did, but if you notice when she says it, she's, she says, like The Collective decided not to let us in, saying we are the hipster wing of... Everybody.
2: That was great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, Sorry, Vice, but they just did like these real, this really bad profile, of, like a woman who owned an Arepa. <laughs> <laughs> which is where they're having all of their parties for Guaido, by the way. Oh, wow. They're, like, in this little Arepa zone is what it's called. Like, that's... Since he can't be in the embassy, I guess that's where he's working from right now when he's not working at, like, Mike Pompeo's dining
0: table or something anya what did you think about the rest of the media it wasn't just vice i mean yeah there was barely any coverage of course but when there was it was like so heavily skewed calling code pink like radical leftists. you know call, saying like no no venezuelans are in the embassy it's like an occupy style hostile takeover by far left activists and eli lake and josh rogan i mean it was comical
1: it was the, all the usual suspects.
0: Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yep.
1: Uh, well, on the point about no Venezuelans being inside, there were early on. The problem is some of those people worked for the government and then other people were freaking afraid that their families in Venezuela would be in danger because of these right-wing thugs. They were like, we don't want to be identified By the people here, it puts our puts our family at home at risk, and they're way more at risk than any of the U.S. activists who put themselves on the front line. Like the Venezuelans who wanted to did want to defend their country's diplomatic building from 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 these oppositionists, were not weren't safe. Mm -hmm. So that's why there were no Venezuelans inside. Like, what do you expect? Why it was very scary. There was just one Nicaraguan girl, uh, Aminta, who was inside of the building. And she received some of the most disgusting and hostile attacks from the, the right wingers. They pit- printed out a picture of her with the, that she posted on her Instagram with a BB gun and had were walking around with signs on it. Then they were shouting her address.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: outside and sure enough diplomatic police actually showed up at her apartment after she got out and tried to like ask her whether or not she was planning to be violent because of wow. a freaking image with a bb gun like an obvious bb gun um and that's what she got they hate her more because she's latina
0: right cuz she looks like yeah mestizo. They want
1: to say that there are only us like white people doing it
0: even though i mean we all know
1: where there
2: are more white people <laughs> in this
1: in this fight there were plenty of them on the side of the opposition um so
2: well i noticed that's
1: why there weren't any venezuelans inside it's important to 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 make that point
2: yeah yeah i mean that the interesting about that is the the only clip that i saw being circulated by sort of these like weird cia flavored twitter people (laughs) like danny gold and Uh, that guy i'm pulse they were taking out of context a clip from the democracy now report Basically making it seem like all the Code Pink people were just like these white assholes right. who were laughing at the fact that there were no Venezuelans there, didn't care. And it was right. like a thirty second clip. And I just thought that was interesting because I mean you were you were there when I'm assuming Amy Goodman came, right?
1: I wasn't. I oh, wasn't weren't. she just she came but, in and out really quickly and then it took her forever to even release it. It was really strange.
2: But I mean, what did you think of the overall report? Was it trying to be fair or was it trying to be like Trying to like poke I mean, holes and things. I mean, like, what well, I didn't actually see the full thing, I just know based cut, on what you're the, saying, take out the context.
1: The way it was put, I thought wasn't great. Uh, and, and it allowed for those people to kind of pick up on that one point. What uh-huh. was more upsetting for us on the inside as as journalists, but then also the, the collective members I spoke to was like they just dropped the story after a certain yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, crazy. We, like, when the electricity got cut off, Democracy and Alex like, didn't really do
0: uh, we were like hello <laughs> yeah we were watching every day for updates and they just kind of dropped the ball on that
1: yeah i i'm not sure why i don't know if, uh i think democracy now might be wary of affiliating itself with certain left mm-hmm. organizations they're 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 a bit i would say anti-communist <laughs> at democracy now and they're yeah it's fair to say. Very strong representation by the Answer Coalition and Code Pink and Popular Resistance, which are like pretty, especially Answer and Popular Resistance, very hardcore left groups.
0: Let's wrap it up here. You were at the arraignment for the collective activists. Um, what did the charges end up being, and what's next, I guess, for the collective?
1: So, interestingly enough, the charge that was expected, people were kind of expecting to just be hit with trespassing. And instead, what they got was interfering with U.S. officials attempting to engage in protective duties. So they're charged with interfering of the Secret Service. I mean, it's, again, Alice in Wonderland here. The Secret Service was the one violating the protected status of the building by trying to get these coup officials inside. And so they're saying that these... Individuals are breaking the law because it's a, it's, it's a slightly more serious charge. It's only a class A misdemeanor, but they could face up to a year in prison and a thousand dollar fine if they're found guilty. And it was very interesting to be in the arraignment on Friday because what we saw was the way this case will force the contradictions of the U.S. government Position on on this embassy to light. and for example, there were there, this was the, the goal in these activists in bringing this case to court it wasn't just to you know hold the embassy up until the point of the protection agreement possibly being reached. They wanted to force the US government to make its case about how it can just suddenly recognize a group of people to be the legitimate government of a country one day and then start, violating international law based on that declaration. So mm-hmm. well during the arraignment, the US government, the prosecutors wanted to ban the four embassy protectors from having any contact with Venezuelan government officials. That was the term that they used. And so because they used this broad language, it for it allowed the defense attorneys who were representing the embassy protectors to say, well, we have to clarify this. When you say Venezuelan government officials, you're talking about officials recognized by the Trump administration. We are talking about the UN-recognized, democratically elected government of
0: Venezuela. Yes.
1: Roll over the territory. And so the judge, who happened to be the judge who also signed these arrest warrants, did agree with the defense. Instead, they had to clarify that language and make sure that when they they say Venezuelan government officials make the distinction that it's talking about Trump-recognized officials. So that was a very significant point just to be argued in court, the fact that you have public defenders before a federal court in Washington saying, well, just to clarify, we're talking about the UN-recognized government. It, It made the U.S. look really bad. It made the U.S. prosecutors also look like they had no idea what they were talking about because they they, they're in over their heads on this. They're just being put up. Everybody's being put up by the State Department Mm -hmm. within the State Department and the White House who want this churic victory, because the reality is once Carlos Vecchio, if he ever does get inside, he's not even going to be able to issue visas or passports or do anything. He doesn't even have an official letterhead. That's why I keep saying, who's your foreign minister, Carlos Vecchio? You can't, you don't even communicate with anyone in Caracas because you don't really represent a government there. You represent the government here. You represent the State Department, you know? So the fact that these issues are being brought up in court uh, is what's going to make this case very significant and interesting. They also wanted to block the four embassy protectors from these massive zones around 10 diplomatic properties in Washington. And the judge. They didn't want to go along with that because, uh, for example, it would have prevented Adrian Pine from going to work because they were trying to, (laughs) just like going down Massachusetts Avenue, a main road in Washington. And then the U.S. government was like, how about a thousand feet? And the judge actually laughed and was like, like three, two or three football fields. Like, are you serious? Like, no, we'll go with a hundred feet. They can't go within a hundred feet of these buildings. So the fact that those the Victories were already won. They, the U.S. government wanted them to surrender their passports. The judge said no to that. Yeah, uh, it, it, it it's already pointing out the weaknesses in the U.S. U.S.'s case, and it's forcing them to make their bogus argument that, yeah, somehow they can just argue who the Venezuelan government is, even when there's like no international consensus or legal. Argument that can be made in, in in support of their of their case um, I'll be surprised if they even want to take it to trial because it will embarrass them so much
0: Well, very interesting revelations already coming out. I guess not all judges are completely captured uh, by the you know by the administration yeah.
1: Signed the arrest for
0: it. That's really interesting. That's really interesting.
1: You can imagine how he got some document from Carlos Becchio being like, I'm the ambassador.
0: Yeah, he's just like, mm.
1: And then doing it, now he's like, wait, this is way more complicated than I realized.
0: Well, uh, hopefully there's many lawsuits brought forward on behalf of the embassy collective. Hopefully that there are you know monumental shifts in global affairs of just realizing that this is what the U.S. empire is capable of, what they're willing to do, the extent they're willing to go, Anya, and um, your hero. Your reporting was absolutely incredible. Please, everyone, follow um, your work on Twitter. Follow your work on Gray Grayzone. Um, absolutely, just incredible work, Anya. I, I was following it just diligently, day to day, and it, it, it's stunning. It's stunning what happened, what happened, and what's continuing to happen. The fact that you know this coup has gone through how many iterations now, and. Yep. We all just need to keep fighting, I mean, and, and keep following your work because you're on the front lines of the resistance uh, to this bipartisan, you know, regime change effort.
1: Yeah, we are winning. I mean, there's a, still a chance this mm-hmm. tax agreement can go through, that international law can stand, even though it's already been abused so much. Yesterday, Carlos Becchio was supposed to meet with Southcom and they blew him off. Like, he was going been wow. to want to be with him. So he had to run around explaining why it was fine that he just met with State Department and Pentagon officials instead. But that's a humiliation. I mean, come on, man. Get it together. Stop saying that you're having meetings with officials that don't even want to see you because you don't control.
0: <laughs> unbelievable it is really unbelievable um but i am so thankful that you're there on the ground and being able to to report what's going on because dc's a really big hot zone of you know incubator baby incubator babies <laughs> doughboys. boys <laughs> so th- <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much anya for taking the time today to explain all of this to us and um, if anyone's listening, please, we, we rely on your support for Patreon, uh, Media Roots Radio. So thanks so much for listening. Media Roots, and follow Anya's work and support her. And uh, we all, we all got to keep, keep fighting this. So thanks so much, Anya. My pleasure, no problem.
2: Thanks for coming on, Anya.